This is Local Switchboard NYC, a women-led audio collective. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jordan Gospore. We're here to bring you news on a human scale. News that reminds us that big stories often start small. News that keeps us connected. On this program... Humbug! Christmas! A humbug, Uncle! You don't mean that, I am sure. I do. And... I would draw all the time. I would draw very different characters that would just pop up in my head. That's all coming up on Local Switchboard NYC. We've just passed the 180th birthday of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, which was first published on December 19, 1843. Since the first time Ebenezer Scrooge waked to the clanking chains of his dead partner, Jacob Marley, his novella has been reprinted numerous times and been translated into film and television. And all over the English-speaking world, the original work is lovingly read and performed by professionals and amateurs alike. One such production is by the McCarter Theatre in Princeton. For we shall endeavor in this ghostly little play to find the ghost of an idea. May it haunt your houses pleasantly. Humbug. Christmas. A humbug, Uncle. You don't mean that, I am sure. I do. I did not believe it when Fred described it to me that anyone could be so against Christmas and the goodness that accompanies it. So I said she must witness it for herself, Uncle, and join me on my annual sojourn to wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. For our Christmas program, we thought it would be nice to just investigate why it is that the Christmas Carol is the hardy perennial that it is. Um, and it's 180 years old, um, has a rich performance history beginning with Dickens' own performances. What makes it endure? I think it's that, at least for me, every year that I've done it, I give a speech at the beginning of rehearsal and, and every year, up until this year, I've said, hopefully next year we'll need this story less. And somehow every year we need it more. And I think that a story that is about the possibility of change and the possibility for hope and transformation uh, and rejuvenation of not just a single person, but what that one's person, one person's change can bring to a whole community is something that just remains very meaningful to us. And somehow, even this year, especially, I've stopped saying we'll need it next less, less next year because it's just never been the case so far. Um, but yeah, when it comes down to it, I think that that hope that we have for transformation and renewal is just something that's evergreen. Now, you have a dual role in this production. You both adapted the novel and you directed it. What were the different approaches you took to those two different roles? That's a good question. I think that I 
rely on, in the case of when I am adapting a work that I'm also directing, rely on uh, my dramaturg to sometimes uh, help me wear different hats within the process and, and have different boundaries around things. Um, so for instance, how open the script still is to edits or not once we get into the rehearsal room. Um, but I like to think of the script as as the jumping off point of my directorial imagination. So there is the adapter side of me that's very in the novel and knows exactly what Dickens said and which things we want to be word for word and which things we may want to translate a bit. And, and I would say that the the values and the goals of this production and the questions we're asking are very much aligned with the same things that Dickens was after when he wrote this story. Um, and all of those things are a jumping off point for me as a director when it comes to casting and the movement and the music and all of those things. So it's a little bit of uh, leaving the adapter uh, behind in rehearsal and then coming to check in with her and say, hey, are you, are you okay with this? <laughs> How's this seem to you? And I will say, you know, we were putting new pages in um, even during tech, so it doesn't stop. Um, but with the help of a great team, you can keep yourself from going too nuts. Now you talked about its obvious continued relevance, but in terms of translating some of the fact that it's an extraordinary period piece as well into a language that makes sense for a contemporary audience who don't necessarily know very much about the Victorians. How how do you feel that you positioned yourself in that sense? I don't, yeah, I, I may not be the best judge, but I think pretty well my experience in adaptation comes a lot from Shakespeare. And so the idea that we may want to keep certain words that aren't extremely familiar to us because we can get it from context and the experience of being in the dialect and being in that vocabulary is part of the theatricality of the, ex the theater going experience is, is one take on it. And in other, other situations, sometimes a clarity of language is really what's required. Dickens got paid by the word. So sometimes you want to just get to the heart of the matter. Um, but he's also, you know, quite poetic and beautiful writer, obviously, and that doesn't want to be lost. So trying to strike a balance, I think. And he's storyboarded, which is interesting because that was not something that was common at the time. Oh. And I mean, you when you think about how prolific he was, yeah, you would have to you would have to innovate. You would have to come up with tools to help you get that amount of work done. It's a lovely production because although theoretically it has a dominant central character, it really seems in the end to be about creating a community of people. Has that been one of the so. pleasures to write in? I think so. It's, it's. I mean, I direct a lot of, of different kinds of work. And I think that when you bring together a company of people for Christmas Carol, and even when you're looking to cast that, uh, I was gonna say title role, I suppose it's not the title role, but the lead, the central role certainly that you're casting for all the things that you would in an incredible classic. And I, I often joke that, you know, at Lear, Lear doesn't have to be happy and exuberant and joyful at the end, you know, and Scrooge does. It's that it's that big of a journey and bigger. So you're casting an incredible actor. And you also have to cast an incredibly generous, um, grounded and community minded person because you're in an intergenerational room 
it's a large company. There's always a lot going on around it in terms of community involvement and the institution and the staff and all the different pressures that can be on a production like this. And then the different energy and activity that can be within the rehearsal room. So to me, it's part of the casting process to say, are you as a person interested in this kind of work? Are you interested in working with youth? Are you interested in being involved in a community? Because those are things that are gonna be asked of you in this process. And if you're not interested in those things, you may find this process difficult and this process may find you difficult. And we all we all are here to have um, the kind of time that we hope this production gives to our audience, which is to say a joyful time and a vulnerable and a connected time. And that's the community that I try to build in the rehearsal room. It was certainly evident at the end of the production. You could tell that they felt really much at one and not that it was simply a piece of staging. There's a good deal of darkness in this story. Oh, yeah. A problematic aspect for a thing that's and I do think, very happy at the end. Well, you need both, I think. And so the production, one of the recent productions I've directed is Antigone, which is quite heavy material. And we made a point, especially uh, we, we were in rehearsal pre-pandemic, shut down, in early March, and then we're one of the lucky productions to return um, in the reemergence. And purposely made an effort to allow that room to have very joyful moments and very joyful aspects to it. Because when you're working on material that's heavier, I do think that that juxtaposition is important and also the not having as an artist not having to carry that around with you all the time is very important um and part of the extreme joy that we experience with christmas carol and part of its satisfaction and its means of enduring is watching someone give over to joy and be moved by joy and that it's, it's that you know contagious laughter sort of a thing that it's very moving i'm sorry i'm interrupting you say again <laughs> Just it's very um, moving, and I especially Joel McKinnon Miller is such a such a present and grounded and vulnerable actor, and so he has these very moving moments uh, all throughout, but especially in the end of the play when he's transformed, and it's I think very cathartic. I was also wondering whether it was simply a fairly accurate reflection of Victorian times. Much of it was you know, filled with want and poverty and dismay. And yet it created this mythic culture that we continue to love and- Yeah, created Christmas in many ways, con our contemporary idea of Christmas. So it's always a fun thing to engage with, also with the company as we um, talk about how Vic that Victorian era is kind of held in our collective imagination and then where that may be accurate or inaccurate and who was really there and what their circumstances really were. Um, and always, first question always is how much did Bob Cratchit really make in today's money? Always the first question. <laughs> I spoke with Regine L. Sawyer. She's a New York City-based comics writer, editor, and the founder of Women in Comics Collective International, or WINK for short. The organization began in New York City in May 2012 and is open to everyone, 
though its focus is on highlighting the merit and work of marginalized voices, including women and people of color. I come from a pretty geeky and artistic family. And when I was a little girl, about four years old, I think that's when it all started. My father would read the Sunday funnies to me every single Sunday. He would read it cover to cover, even Kathy. And he would say to me, why do you want to know about Kathy? She's a 35-year-old woman who's super depressed. Like, why do you want to know about her? And I said, well, she's in like, she's in the, the cartoons, Daddy. So let's just, can you just read them, please? Um, and he would. He, he would. He would read cover to cover. And from there, he would buy me Archie comics and Jughead, Betty and Veronica. Anytime we went to the to the grocery store. And then my brother, he was a huge lover of Marvel comics. And we would watch the old cartoons, um, Spider-Man and Friends, Super Friends, the original Incredible Hulk. We watched all of that stuff. And at one point, he introduced me to the X-Men. Um, and that was when we got our first Nintendo. And the first Nintendo had an X-Men game, which was cool and weird at the same time. It was a really bizarre game, but that's when I first was introduced to Storm. And I said, who is that? <laughs> like, who is she? Like, I have to know who she is. And from there, he started buying me comics. I was buying myself comics. I got really hardcore into c collecting comic book cards and I still have my collection. Um, I still love it so very much because I, what I love mo most about comic book cards, and this is what sort of drew me to wanting to write characters and create characters, was the fact that they had very, very distinct descriptions of the characters on the back of the card, from their abilities to a little bit of their history, to even a slogan that they say. And I thought that was fascinating. It really kind of gave you insight to who those characters were. And so I was already interested in, in writing. I love storytelling and so forth. So about, I think I was about maybe about nine or 10 years old when I started just drawing characters. And uh, my mother supported it. My mother's a painter. Like her, her pictures are behind me. <laughs> her paintings are behind me. God rest her soul. And so she really, she, she encouraged it. At first she thought it was super weird. Like, why do you like this hobby that belongs to boys? She never said it like that, but she just said, why, why, why comics? And I said, why not? I enjoy it. I like it. And she kind of just left it at that. Like, okay, my kid likes this. I'm going to go all in with her. if She likes it. So started collecting the comic books. Again, the cards, uh, my, my brother would buy a lot of stuff for me. I would buy a lot of stuff as well. He, and he's about 13 years older than me so it, so but no matter what no matter how much older I got or how much older he got we still had that connection and that love so I would buy comics for him with my little allowance and you know he'd get for me and I think it was when I entered high school where I really buckled down and started writing comic book stories and doing like a set set of characters because I would draw all the time I would draw very just different characters that would just pop up in my head but now I I had a storyline and that was actually born out of the fact that I was trying to find a more affordable way to read comics and that was by going to the library and that's when I was introduced to manga and at the time I guess they didn't realize what type of content was in some of this manga because no they didn't like it was just sitting it was just you know sitting on the shelf and it was all I when I think about it now it was impressive because at this point it's like 1998 and they had they had a uh several shelves like a, a whole bookshelf shelves with a manga on it and I remember sitting down and flipping through some and they were hyper violent towards women 
one one in particular and it, and it, it is a still a very famous manga and it was so violent just pages and pages when I say pages like I was counting it was like a good 30 pages of violence against a woman and I said there has to be something more than this there has to be something better for me for my friends who enjoy this and that's when I came up with my first book The Rippers and I cultivated that crafted that and really played with it even up through college I was still like writing a little bit about it I wasn't sure what I want to do with it because uh, I at that point, I was going to college for hospitality management. I studied to be a chef. That's where my vocation is. I went to New York City College of Technology, City Tech for short, in downtown Brooklyn. I'm New York from top to bottom. And so after I graduated college, I went straight into being a food manager at, I think it's 22, 23, a food manager in the Department of Education. But comics never left me. So creativity, all of that, no matter what I was doing, all of that stayed with me. I knew I was going to do something with it. I just wasn't sure what. So in 2006 is when I decided I'm going to do this. Like I'm going to figure out how to write comics, how to get published. And you know, I knew a little bit about self-publishing at that time because my mother was so helpful to me. Like once she realized that the, like I had these different loves, like from culinary to comics, she said, I'm here with you. So she went to my first took me to my first comic book convention in 1995 and all that like when I was 15 so she really went hard in the paint so she was just like if this is what you want to do do it I you know I, I support you so with that said I I looked into getting a cartooning degree from the SVA I was really thinking about it thinking about getting a second bachelor's and I was chatting about it with a friend in a comic book shop in the city and a gentleman overheard me and he said, well, what's up with your, your work? Like, I'd really like to see it. I have an independent company. Maybe I can help help you. So I, I started working with him. I worked for him for about a year, uh, unpaid. That's another story for another day. I taught myself how to edit comics from the scripts to the artwork. I learned how to write comic book scripts. I got as many books as I could on comic book scripting read them from cover to cover, put them in practice. I learned how to hire artists. I learned how to write ads, learned about the convention circuit and how to get tables and professional badges and all of that. It was very much DIY. I feel very much a part of the story of my life. And I left this company after a year and I started Lock It Down Productions in late 2007. And I published my first comic myself in 2009. And so in the midst of this, I'm also learning about what it is to be a woman, namely a Black woman in the comic book industry. And, you know, when people ever ask me about like what my experiences have been and, and so forth, what was interesting yet not interesting was the fact that I walked into the industry just not thinking about my aesthetic. I wasn't thinking about it. And, you know, I think a lot of us aren't. You know, you just see, all you know is that I really love this thing. It's fun. I enjoy it. And I wasn't lacking awareness of how people might respond to me, how men specifically would respond to me. But I, I mean, I had so much work under my, my belt that I wasn't, that just, it, it, it wasn't at the front of, front of my mind. So once I got there and I was, I was, I was, I was young. I was a little, I was a cute thing. I was still, listen, still am. I was, you know, 25 and you know, going, going to these conventions and they didn't see a lot of women that looked like me and just from top to bottom, like aesthetic wise or whatever. 
And all of a sudden, you know, you have these guys that some, all of a sudden want to help you. All of a sudden, someone wants to put their arm around you while you're walking through the convention floor. And I'm like, get off me. <laughs> what is happening? I just want to buy comics. I just want to uh, do this work. So when 2012 hit, more and more women had been um, discussing comics in terms of them working in comics and what what that was like. But you didn't see a lot of women of color in the industry or talking about it. So it kind of led people to believe that we weren't here, but we were. Early 2012, I was asked to be a moderator for a panel at a local comic book um, convention. And the panel was women in comics. And it was me and uh, several other women, most, all of color. And folks were really shocked to see us. They're like, really? There's <laughs> women of color in comics? Like, what the? what is this? And a lot of the women that were on panel had been in the industry for a long time. Um, some of them, I didn't know. But I was so glad to finally know them and meet them. And so after the panel, some of us were talking and we were sort of like, you know, we need to do more, more things like this. That'd be really cool. And one of the panelists in particular, um, and I want to shout her out, Aletha E. Martinez, who's been in the industry for 20 plus years. Um, she's also the first woman of color to work at both Marvel and DC on lead books as an artist. Lead penciler. Yes. Yes. She came up to me and she said to me, I don't get invited to things like this. Like no one, no one ever asked me. And I said, well, I'll be asking you. <laughs> and from there, really, Wink was born, aka Women in Comics. And we started doing panel discussions at other local places. And then I guess folks would come visit those areas, like from outside the state. And they would say, well, can you come to my state? Can you come and talk about the same thing? And I said, you know, sure. And then folks asked, like, can you do workshops? Can you teach this stuff? I said, uh, I, I can figure it out. <laughs> we can, like, I can figure out, we'll figure it out. Like, can you do art shows? I never curated an art show before. I said, well, I know some folks who can help me learn how. I started curating art shows. And then that grew into us having a, a convention, now known as Wink Creative Conference. And the organization is 11 years old now, which is crazy, 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 crazy. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's basically me. That's that. <laughs> I'm Jordan Gosporé, and you've been listening to Local Switchboard NYC. Our team is host, me, Jordan Gosporé, and reporters Sarah Montague, Betsy Lakin, and Heather Chin. You're part of our neighborhood now. So, if there's a local story you think is important, let us know at localswitchboard at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.